iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Welcome to the Apple Store, everybody. Uh, we're about to get underway. Before we bring on our guest, please enjoy the trailer for the film Tyson. The first question we ask is, who am I? Who am I? Heavyweight champion of the world. Voices fighting each other. Madness. I can't lose. I refuse to lose. The makeup of the mind. I met the president of Chesney. I met the president of Istanbul. I'm going to relax them because I don't want my head to swell any more than it is. They gave me a parade in Moscow. They don't even speak English over there. I've always been interested in women. They have a magnetic force towards me. It's been pure hell. That was disastrous because I was too um, immature to be married. It was the most horrible time of my life. Going to prison, I lost my reputation. I lost everything that I worked so hard for. And they would open the door, and then we were coming behind them with our guns, and we would rob them. The guy could take you to the next level. He said, just trust this man. I won all the championships. I got, I'm, I'm going to cry because he told me what to do. <sighs> to be honest, I'm a jerk sometimes. I think things that sometimes crash. He took me in his house. He didn't even know me. When I first come here, I said, wow, I could rob these white guys. This supposed to be my black brother, but he's just a wretched, slimy, reptilian mother. Along the way, I became a very proud father of six kids. And I'm fighting, fighting, but all of a sudden I'm getting hit. Boom, boom, pow, pow. The next thing I know, the fight is stopped. I was an ex-champion. Unbelievable thing I've ever been privileged to witness. If I have any anger, if it's directed at anyone, it's directed at myself. I come out, I have supreme confidence, but I'm scared to death. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome tonight's moderator, a writer, and appearing in and on Rolling Stone, Access Hollywood, MTV, CNN, and BET, Torre, and filmmaker James Toback. Let's hear it for him. How y'all doing? How are y'all doing? Yeah. All right. This is going to be fun because the Tyson movie is fantastic. I've seen it. And this man who directed it is a bon vivant. <laughs> if you know what that means, like, I mean, this is a real bon vivant of the classic time. I mean, when I was waiting to interview Mike, Mike was about two hours late, six journalists sitting around in Brett Ratner's house waiting for Tyson. This man talked for two straight hours never coming up for breath, telling all sorts of stories, entertained us, gave me half my story. So we're doing good when we have Jim Toback in the house. I, I, I accept all the compliments with gratitude and relish. <laughs> the first question which people on Twitter told me to ask you, do you like fish sticks? Unfortunately, as my current weight will attest, I like everything. You do? So you like to put fish sticks in your mouth? Yeah, I do. I, I, I've, I don't know what happened to my What arm. does that make him, people? 
It makes me orally omnivorous. Why do you think people hate Mike Tyson? Because there's a lot of ill will toward him in the world. Uh, primarily in America, I must say. You know, yeah. one of the things, having been with this movie in eight countries now and having seen it with eight audiences, uh, even though the movie itself wins people over here and they end up liking him after seeing it, in the other countries, and I'm talking about Germany, Austria, France, uh, uh, UK, there is, from the beginning, a favorable anticipation. I think here what it is, obviously, is the rape conviction. And the irony about that is that the word conviction is rings as though it, it meant guilt. Actually, how many people are there in prison who were convicted and did not do the thing for which they were convicted. Well, I mean, it's interesting you point that out because you hit the Desiree Washington issue hard. She is one of the big villains of this piece. Her and Don King are the two big villains. And the whole piece is just Mike Tyson talking. There's nobody else talking. So it's just from Mike's mind. And, I mean, one of the most shocking comments in the whole film, he says about Desiree, he says, I took advantage whatever that means. I took advantage of many women, but I didn't take advantage of her. He said, in no way did I take that woman's chastity in his very particular Victorian <laughs> locution. Um, he, you know, I've known Mike for uh, 25 years, and if I thought he were a rapist, I would not be, I would not have anything to do with him. There, Mike is chased and pursued by women. I mean, there are... But in that comment, he's saying, well, I went too far with went, other women. Yes, and I think that what, what that what that means, only he can say, but I don't think in any way it means uh, uh, rape. What in her case happened, I think, I mean, no one knows except the two people who were there, True. is something that he feels not only was um, un unjustly and viciously and untruthfully portrayed, but resulted in three and a half years of uh, unjust incarceration and humiliation and degradation, which is why he says, people say to me, well, you gotta move on, you gotta get over it. He said, it's easy for them to say, I can't get over it, it haunts me, it changed my life. And of course, when you listen to his description of being in prison and you realize how horrifying it was, you think, if this is how Mike Tyson was affected by three and a half years of incarceration, I would rather be in the Siberian tundra than have one day in a yeah. federal penitentiary, yeah. maximum security penitentiary. But the, in answer to your question, I think that Tyson is the bad guy of boxing. Boxing already is a sport that has always bred bad guys from, the, from Jack Johnson, who was vilified when he was champion. Yep. Yep. And Dempsey was always partially vilified. And Muhammad Ali was originally vilified. People forget you, that. I mean, yeah, people of my generation forget that before, when he was Cassius Clay, beating Sonny Liston, he was the most hated man in America. Absolutely. He was considered an un-American, draft-dodging guy who should be should be ostracized and from American were society. Rooting, people were rooting for Sonny Liston to win yes. because somehow he was a more heroic, good figure than Ali. To say nothing of Floyd Patterson and Ernie Terrell and the whole first group of fighters. It was 15, probably 10 years before Ali was finally accepted. So there's always been a bad guy in fighting. And, um, and Mike, Tyson took that to another absolutely, level. Absolutely, and he did. And, and also, as you see in the movie, he was bred for ferocity. Custom Otto bred his fighters 
to be ferocious in the ring, and Mike uses the word, and he talks about it as an art, but it's an art of utter destruction, and he did it in such a lethal way and so unapologetically. The interesting thing and the paradox and what makes André Gide's famous statement, don't understand me too quickly, uh, so relevant to Mike, is that he is an immensely complicated, unusual individual, and you see him confessing to being consumed by fear, to being driven by yes, fear. Fear is the big word of the whole piece that he mentions repeatedly being afraid as a child, being afraid coming out of jail, and most shockingly, being afraid before a fight. And as he's walking to the ring, he's afraid. But as he's walking in, he starts to beat the fear. And then you have this great moment where he's staring in the eyes he, of his opponent. He, he projects his fear into the other into the other fighter's being through the eyes. I will stare my fear into you and, affect, and infect you with it. And, uh, and his confessions all along of being overwhelmed by fear, of being a short, fat kid, of being bullied, of being pushed around, of having a tremendous vulnerability, of breaking down and crying while he's talking about Customato, and of crying when he's about to express his homicidal rage, where you see the, that the rage and the homicidal craziness is coming right out of this sense of himself as a short, fat, impotent kid who is pushed around and using discipline and effort and will to overcome that sense of inadequacy to become substantial and then bringing himself down through his own hubris, which is why when he first saw the movie he said it's like a Greek tragedy, the only problem is I'm the subject. I mean, when I talked to him about the piece, he said... If that guy was here now, I would be scared of him. And you know, he, he, it's, it's interesting you say that, because um, when we were at Sundance, um, and that was before, which is when he first realized that, uh, before you, you spoke to him, um, we had this five-minute standing ovation afterward, and he, I noticed while he was up there on the stage, there was something going on in his mind, and I could feel it. And when we finally got to the dinner afterward, I said, what have you been thinking? And he said, you know, for years, everybody always said, how everyone's scared of me and I, always, I used to think why what are they talking about what are they afraid of and he said tonight's the first time when I watched the movie and I thought to myself I'm scared of that guy I mean you know one of the things that a lot of people don't really realize about Mike is that he's a thrice abandoned child that his father was not really part of his life and he's not really clear on who his father was is his mother dies when he's 16, so she only knows him as a thug in and out of jail. Customato adopts him, shows him love, the first person outside of mom who's really showing him love, and then he dies, so he's abandoned three times by parental figures before he's 19. Right, and, and, and felt, as he describes it, as a lost, lonely kid who actually when you think about Mike Tyson's physical size and prowess, he's speaking at 19, about himself at 19, as if he were 13, because he really felt emotionally as if he were 13. And he had, had been in that cocoon of protection at Cusses. So he wasn't ready in any way other than physically, as a fighter, to go out into the world, and ended up with his hugely self-destructive streak 
actively engaging in his own sabotage, which is why all through the movie he keeps saying, I have only myself to blame. I have only myself to blame, because you mentioned Don King and Desiree Washington, and those are the only two people in the movie whom he actually blames other than himself. Every other misfortune he's had, basically he holds himself responsible for. Well, it. Let's talk about Don King for a second, because you break news in this, and I think a lot of people who are Tyson fans and boxing fans will be happy to hear about this story. I mean, something that we did not know, that Tyson beat the crap out of, stomped Don King in front of the Beverly Hills Hotel. And you can only imagine Mike Tyson, he says, I stomped him and stomped him and stomped him. I mean, how vicious was it? Well, you know, one can only imagine, except that he says... Um, that there were three, and smiles a little bit, decrepit white ladies who were watching him, and uh, he says he thought they must have imagined him as some black heathen. And he also says something quite interesting. Of course, the reason for this stomping of Don King is that he had found that a substantial amount of money was missing and held Don King responsible, although he says Don King denied it. But then he talks about uh, uh, actually loving Don King, and he says this, so you see this... Uh, this sense of uh, betrayal, of wounded uh, uh, emotional integrity. I was looking for Don King to be my fourth father figure, my fourth figure of authority who would look out for me, and he presented himself that way. Don King, of course, has always presented himself as the answer to everybody's problems when he takes a fighter on. And King definitely exploited the idea that we're both black, yes, so the, roll with me instead of Costamato and Kevin Rooney right. and Steve Lott, these white people who don't care about... When the white people cared about Mike much more than Don King actually Right, did. and that's something that, that, that Mike learned only from experience. Uh, one of the funniest moments in the movie occurs when he says that then it became a court case, and he said, of course, I don't know anything about that court bullshit, but they awarded me some amount, some small amount of money, 30 million, 20 million, 10 to 30 million, I don't some know, some small, small amount, amount of, money. of money, 20 or 30 yeah. million dollars. And you can see that where what happened was, because he once had over 300 million, the unit, even though he now has nothing remotely like any of that, the unit in his head remains three, 100 million. So you have 100 million, 200 million, 300 million. So 30, 20, 10 is just all in the below 50 category. Um, let's talk about Tyson psychologically, because this film is like sitting in on somebody's therapy session. Right. And, and, and so you are the therapist, so I'm interested to hear your, um, your, your ideas, but like when I talked to him just for a few hours, I got the sense that there is a turbulent mind, right? Like a, like a ro rolly, roaring sea, you know, with a storm going on. You know, that's the main part of his mind. But in the middle of that, there's a calm little boat, the central consciousness, which is aware that the sea is stormy, there's demonic, ill voices telling him to do things he shouldn't do. So he's aware that his mind is not his friend, that's, but he, you know, so he's trying to work that's that out. A, that's what actually, did you get? That's a great metaphor for that. Um, I think what happened was, and he confesses to having gone insane when he was in solitary confinement. In fact, when he got out of prison, he said to me, because uh, I had told him when we first met when he was 19, we were walking through Central Park at 6 o'clock in the morning about an LSD experience I had when I was a sophomore at Harvard when I was 19 and I flipped out for eight days. And he We cannot spend five minutes with Jim Toback without going into the story of his eight-day LSD 
flip out. It was so like, we're going to get into that. Okay, so it was like the B.C. and A.D. of my life, and I had told him about madness. He didn't quite know what I was talking about, as no one does who hasn't been there. But when he came out of prison, first thing he said to me when we ran into each other was, I was lying in solitary in a corner, and all of a sudden I realized this is what Toback was talking about, and I am now insane. And one of the symptoms of it with everybody, madness, is multiple voices. So Mike was hearing voices, and when you say that calm, which is calm voice, which is the central one you hear, but there are all these other ones at warring for articulative supremacy. And uh, you, you get that sense of, uh, of cacophony around the, the quiet essence. It's a fascinating uh, portrait, um, and I think stylistically I found a way of making one feel it because you have these split-screen images, moving images. It's not at all like a conventional documentary in that way, and you have these multiple tracks of voices. But before you use the therapeutic analogy, and actually there I would say psychoanalytic rather than therapeutic because the therapist speaks to the patient face-to-face -face question and answer, whereas the analyst is out of view, a voice from behind the uh, analysand, basically freeing the unconscious voices to come out. When I was in psychoanalysis, first three years, uh, first three weeks of my three years with Gustav Bischofsky, an octogenarian Polish analyst and Freud's last patient, I used to jump off the couch after saying certain things and say, I didn't mean that, I didn't mean that, I didn't mean that, and Bischofsky would just kind of shrug, okay, you didn't mean it. But of course, you do mean it, because it's part of what's coming out of you. And I think one of the reasons Mike was so startled when he actually saw the movie put together for the first time was that he didn't realize that he had said a lot of the things that he'd said, because they came out of his unconscious, they came from beneath the surface, because the environment we set up when we were shooting was such, on a couch, allowing those voices to come out. Yeah, I mean, tell them about the, the structure of making the film. You rent a house. In the Hollywood in Hills, and we had two locations. One was a sunset uh, location on the beach where he's walking alone on the beach, and the other was sitting on a couch or on different couches in this beautiful, huge house in the Hollywood Hills with a camera, the two cameras sort of hidden, not obtrusive in any way. A sound guy was basically off, and then with me off camera and behind him. So he's kind of alone. Alone, comfortable, and with no pressure to answer. It was never, here's a question, give me an answer. It was just, for instance, the first morning I said, um, in just this tone of voice, so um, what about um, early memories? That's it. That's it, and then 40 minutes later, I said my next sentence. We had two cameras running for 40 minutes, high def, Panasonic Genesis and Panasonic Varicam. And at the end of 40 minutes, he had finished talking for maybe 10 of those minutes. The rest of the time, you have this vast array of fascinating facial expressions, which I used all through the movie. And it allowed him to build up emotionally to things. Because instead of answering a question, getting another question, and being able to escape the emotional impact of where his thoughts were leading him, he let himself drift and drift and come over here and come back. And that's why you get those things like, I'm about to cry, and then he's starting to cry, and then, and then it, I can't even say it, and hyperventilating, and then at that harrowing, chilling moment where he says that if anyone ever fucked with him again, he would kill him. If anyone ever tried to bully him again, I would fucking kill him. And he says it in this barely articulate, heavy breathing way that makes you feel 
it's almost as if he wishes someone were there at that moment to fuck with him so that he could have an excuse to kill him. Um, anything that you wanted to ask that you couldn't? No, I, I, I didn't inhibit myself any more than he inhibited himself. I mean, that was the deal from the beginning. There was no point in making the movie if either of us were going to be even mildly hesitant about saying anything. And the other part of the deal was that I would edit the movie in any way I wanted and that we, he would just go with that. The one thing he did say was, because just as I show him as the most brilliant fighter ever in the early part of the movie, I show him getting battered in the latter part of the movie, and he says to me, do you have to have me getting the shit beaten out of me so many times at the end? And I said, well, I did cut out the Danny Williams fight, which <laughs> I had in, and he said, gee, thanks. <laughs> There's some fascinating stuff in the film about sex. And you said to me that the way he talks about it, you feel like you're watching a fuck. Well, you and, do. And, I mean, he, and he talks about domination. He talks about, uh, you know, get, not getting, being negative to the girls and not giving them what they want and all that. Like, saying no. I love that. to say no. I love to say no. I love to get a CEO, a self, a not, not a physically strong woman, a mentally strong woman who is successful and has stature. And then I want to dominate her. And um, what you get the feeling is that while he's talking about this, he's seeing it, he's remembering incidents. In fact, he talks about one incident which he unwittingly refers to having performed fellatio on the girl. On a woman, performed fellatio on a woman. Yeah, In right. a bathroom. In a bathroom at an elegant Fifth Avenue party with a lot of very beautiful and famous people. And uh, the, uh, the way he speaks about everything is as though it's happening in his head at that moment. It's all as if he's seeing it and hearing it. And he does have a very vivid and photographic memory. Often he'll refer to conversations, or I'll refer to conversations we'd had 15 years ago, and he'll correct one word that I quote him as having said. Well, you, you, know, you take us back right there. You've known him for 23 years. Right. And you were introduced by a person who... Everybody in this room's heard of, but you haven't heard the name in a long time, Anthony Michael Hall. Right. Uh, yeah, who was is, who is a friend of Mike's and who was also a friend of Downey's. And Downey, I had just given Downey his first job as Robert an actor. Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, in uh, The Pickup Artist. And Anthony Michael Hall, who was very close to Downey, brought Tyson over to the set to meet Downey. And then after meeting Downey, Tyson met me and said, you're the white motherfucker that was living with Jim Brown because he had just been to Jim Brown's house in the Hollywood Hills. And you did a story on Jim Brown for Esquire. Oh, well, I didn't do it. I was supposed to, do, supposed it, to do it. And I did a book instead. Right, became friends, helped him with his autobiography. No, I moved in and wrote a memoir called Jim, the author's self-centered memoir on Jim Brown, which is just being republished. His autobiography was written with somebody else years later. Okay. I wrote a memoir about living with Jim in his house as the only white guy in this totally black, orgiastic world, which was fun. <laughs> I bet. We tell him briefly, I'm going to go off the subject of Tyson for a second, but tell him the story about doing the film with Jim Brown, where he's... Oh, the, uh, the, 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 um, um, there is a scene in Fingers in which an only Jim who has <clears throat> no regard whatsoever, as Mike doesn't, for the opinion of others. He will do what he wants and say what he wants and behave the way he wants. Um, and Jim had been arrested several times for a specific act of banging two girls' heads together in a harrowing context. And I wrote that into the movie because I, I have a thing about using people as versions of themselves and erasing the line between role player and role. So I wrote into the movie Jim, Bra Jim Brown, Harvey Keitel, and Fingers. And I wrote Jim Brown into doing on 
camera in the movie what he had done in real life. Bashing two girls' and, heads and, there, and there's a harrowing moment in the movie where that happens, and, uh, and it has a kind of chilling effect. And Pete, now this movie's a kind of classic. They showed it at Cannes Classics this last year. It was remade as a French film called The Beat That My Heart Skipped, the only American movie ever to be made into a French movie. But at the time, there were a lot of people who were angry at the movie because they felt just by depicting that event, given that Jim had really been arrested for it, that somehow I was condoning it or advocating it, which of course is a ludicrous but, idea. I mean, you, you said that he, you wanted him to go close. Close, yes. Don't actually bash the heads. Right, And close. the first take, he actually did bash well, their heads. Well, I, you know, and it may have been an accident, but 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 Tisa's head hit, got hit. And, and, and you said... Well, I don't want to go into that, you know, it's a, <laughs> but... but uh, I, the, the, the reality is that, that, that you feel all through that movie, it's true of Harvey's performance too, it, that you're getting very close to the nerve of who people actually are and not actors playing roles. And that's what I've always been looking for. And one of the reasons this documentary was such a great thing to do is that you take one of the most fascinating, complicated people who ever lived, uh, which I believe Mike Tyson is, and you really see him and see into him. And the idea of movies which are just so-called dramatic portraits with actors playing roles that have nothing to do with themselves has becoming more and more boring to me over the years. I just find it hard to concentrate on them unless they're spectacularly good. And it's much more interesting to me to either see a, a non-fiction movie or a fictional movie that is fucking with reality in a way that takes characters who are interesting and uses what's interesting about them. So you don't have this sort of I mean, nauseating jargon like, oh, she was so courageous to play a part like that. How about just working in a coal mine for two hours? You know, the sort of pampered idiocy about actors taking great chances by playing some emotionally complicated role as if that's some heroic achievement. But I, I, I find it's much more fascinating to get to something that feels real because it is either real or partially real. And you're getting to the truth of that person. Um, I want to open up to questions in a second so you know just raise and we're gonna get to you guys but tell them the short version of the LSD eight-day LSD flip out story that was uh, it's a good story that was uh, um, a, a, a very much 60s Harvard story it was 1964 when I was a sophomore at Harvard and LSD was just breaking out Timothy Leary and uh, and Alpert had just been kicked out of Harvard for giving LSD to a lot of their students. And uh, it was legal in, then, in those days, by the way. And I flew to Switzerland uh, to Sanders Laboratories, which manufactured it to get pure LSD-25, lysergic diethylamide-25, in blue sugar cubes. And I brought back a box of 100 cubes, which uh, the customs guy asked me what it was. And I said, it's LSD. Aldous Huxley did it. Cary Grant did it. Robert Graves did it. And I gave the customs guy a cube. Who knows what happened to that? But uh, marijuana was illegal, but LSD was not. So uh, anyway, I decided that I would, I would take a heavy dose. And what happened was, because the sugar tasted so good, I ate the whole box. And so you ate 99? 99. You're supposed to eat maybe one or two. But I wasn't getting high at first. I wasn't feeling anything. It just was enjoying the sugar. And by the time I started to get into it, 
and really feel some hallucinations happening. They seemed so beautiful. I was sitting in Elsie's restaurant on, in, uh, on Mount Auburn Street, and the cars were coming through the window and flying across the room, and the hamburgers were getting stuck on the wall, and the chairs were separating, and people's eyes were coming out of their heads. And I was thinking, this is pretty fantastic. And I started hearing the Brahms German Requiem in my head, note for note. So I just kept eating the cubes. And finally, after 45 minutes, I'd eaten the whole box. And then for nine hours, it was absolute ecstasy. I did every imaginable crazy thing, and it was all beautiful and hallucinatory. And then all of a sudden, I ran into this guy named John Rich, who was a swimmer from Arizona, who had disappeared about six weeks earlier. And he looked disheveled and weird. And I said, John, everybody's been asking about you. Where have you been? What's been going on? And he kind of looked and said, well, I was, I'm all right. I'm, where have you been? And I said, listen, I found God. I found the truth. I, in fact, I am God. I, I just did, and I told him about the LSD thing. And he, I said, you must do it. And he said, well, I, I, did, I did some. I said, when was that? And he said, about six weeks ago. I said, <laughs> and, and, and what happened? He said, it was okay. I said, well, isn't it it? Isn't it God? Isn't it great? And I couldn't get him to say yes, which bothered me. And I said, well, how long did it last? I made a movie, by the way, called Harvard Men, which shows all this exactly as it happened with Adrian Grenier. And, uh, and he said, uh, I said, how long did it last? And he looked me in the eye and he said, sometimes it never ends. <laughs> and that was it. It went from absolute, and I have that in the movie, it went from absolute ecstasy to unspeakable agony, where for the next eight days, if you would promise me that by blowing my brains out, I wouldn't exist anymore, I would have done it in two seconds. My fear was, I'm going to blow my brains out and still feel this way. So that, that was what I was afraid of. And then I, I went around for eight days, just like unimaginably erratic and crazy, where everybody was saying, what's wrong, what's wrong, what can I do? And I didn't know what to do other than kill myself. I didn't want to do it. So I called my mother and I said, told I her, love that you called your mother. Yeah, well, who right? else are you going to trust? Your LSD who, who else are you going to trust in a situation like that? And I called her, I told her what happened. I said, you must find someone who knows something about LSD. So she calls me back and she said, listen, there are two people who synthesized LSD in Switzerland, Max Rinkel and Hoffmann. Hoffmann's in Germany. Max Rinkel is in Newton, Massachusetts, which was eight miles from where this I was. This is an amazingly lucid response from a mother, because I know my mom would be like, oh, my yeah, God, no, you're going to die. My, my mother was uh, unlike any. I mean, she was incredible, and she, and she flew up, but she said, before I come up, call this guy and, and get over to see him. So I called him. He was in the phone book. And I, or information, and he said, uh, come over to my house right away. This is all in Harvard Man 2, exactly as it happened with John Neville playing the part. I, I go to his house, he's looked like Fernandel, five feet four, three-piece suit, hair slicked back. I come to knock on his door, he comes out, he puts his hands on my shoulders, he looks me in the eye, and he says, one way or another, your agony will end tonight which made me feel a little bit better. And I went into his house, and he takes me down to the basement, and he gives me a piece of paper that says, in case I should die as the result of the medication administered to me by Dr. Max Rinkle of Newton, Massachusetts, I hereby absolve Dr. Rinkle of all responsibility in my death. And I said, what are the chances that I'm going to die? He said, very good. I said, very good that I'm going to live or that I'm going to die? He said, that you're going to die. I said, you mean like 50-50? He said, more like five to one. I said that I'm going to die, and he said, yes. I said, well, why should I take it? He said, do you want to feel like this for the rest of your life? 
I said, I can't stand to feel like this for two seconds more. He said, well, then sign it and roll up your sleeve. And I signed it, and I rolled up my sleeve. And he got out there, and he had the needle with the, with, with the syringe with the thing. He puts it, later told me it took eight minutes to go in. Around the third or fourth minute, I started to feel myself coming back together. It was a very ecstatic, pleasant experience, by the way. And I, I thought, this is, might be okay, this might be okay. And I woke up like 30 hours later on his couch. And I was basically cool from that point on. The only thing is, and this is why I had flipped out, not just the dose, I'd been afraid of death. And, what ha and that's why I flipped out. And what happened was that after that experience, I lost my fear of death, and I've been totally unafraid of it ever since. And when you are genuinely unafraid of death, not faking it, no one can really fuck with you. You have a sense of power that not, no other person who is afraid of death can have. So I went from being terrified of death, which I didn't know, to being completely cool with death. And, uh, and so in the long run, it became the most valuable thing that ever happened to me, although for eight days, it was the worst excruciating pain imaginable. That's dope, that's dope. Let's, um, let's get you guys involved, uh, you in the front, sir. The question, is, the question is, where does Mike Tyson put himself as an historian of boxing? And Mike probably knows more about the history of boxing than any other fighter who lived. Uh, where does he put himself in boxing history? How does he rate himself? He's very generous to Ali, whom he's very friendly with, and he refers to Ali twice as the greatest fighter who ever lived. He also lets it slip out that he calls himself the greatest fighter who ever lived. And I think that he feels that he won't admit it because he's modest, uh, that, that for the early years, and there's a three and a half clip, minute clip in the movie where the combination of speed and power you couldn't put together than any other fighter. At that period in his life, I think he was, he thinks too, the greatest fighter who ever lived. I think he thinks that. And then he, it's talking about Ali, Jack Dempsey, who he emulated. In fact, he used to check into hotels under the name Jack Dempsey. Jack Johnson, but he also tellingly says that because speed was always the key to have great power and speed, he modeled himself stylistically on Kid Chocolate, Henry Armstrong, and Tony Canzaneri, who were lightweights with very quick hands and deft style. Who was the South American fighter he talked about, too? Carlos Monzon. This is a fascinating... Yes, yes, when, when I asked him, who's the greatest fighter of all time, he hemmed and hawed, and he said, Carlos Monzon. Monzon... Who I'd never even heard of. Monzon was a major motherfucker. Monzon was... Uh, uh, Argentinian middleweight who was the uh, middleweight champion for a while. So this is a great story. I got to tell you this because this is really fucking real. That t Carlos Monzon was very friendly with Alain Delon. How many of you know who Alain Delon is? Isn't Alain Delon is one of the great French movie stars. He's in, been in six or seven of the best movies ever made. He also was a uh, was a boxing promoter for a while, and he and he promoted Monzon's fights in Europe in the 70s and 80s. And uh, I didn't know this. Delon told me this story just a few months ago in Paris. I said, whatever happened to Monzon? He said, well, he, he, he had this tempestuous relationship with his girlfriend. And they were in a condo, and they were arguing, and they fell off the, 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 the terrace together. And she landed on her head and died. And he was bruised, but he was okay. And he got convicted of manslaughter and went to jail in, in uh, Buenos Aires. And, uh, and uh, Carlos Mena was the president of Argentina, was a friend of Alain Delon's. And Bonzon calls Delon and says, you got to get me out of here, I'm going crazy. So 
Delon calls Menem, the president of Argentina, and says, I got to get, uh, get Monzon out of prison. And uh, Menem says, well, if you'll come here, I will have a press conference, and I'll say that you, because you're an icon in Argentina, that you uh, and I together agreed to pardon Monzon. So Delon flies there. He gets Monzon out. Monzon calls him and says, thank you so much. Meet me at the hotel. We'll celebrate. Alain Delon gets to the hotel, and, and Monzon was dead. He got killed in a car crash on the way from prison to the hotel. I mean, Tyson, um, with me, he really did not want to rank himself, and he kept saying, that's for other people to say. Right. And, you know, y you forget, he was only champ for three years. I mean, at this point, to put him top ten fighters of all time well, is at his really peak, dicey. At his peak. At his peak, if you say at his best, who could have beaten him, I think the answer is nobody. That's a solid question. Yeah. But when you look at the whole of the career, yeah, even I mean, if you just take just pre-jail, right. is, is it top ten all time? Uh, no, you got to say no. those three years he was the greatest. And then, you, I mean, Joe Lewis was champion for 12 years, so you got to give him massive I mean, it'd credit. It would be fascinating to see Tyson at his peak with Ali at his peak. I think Tyson was just as quick and could take a punch just as well and was ten times the puncher Ali ever was. Yeah, but Ali could take a hell of a punch. Joe Frazier, George Foreman. It would have been a wild fight. Could have been a rope fight. a dope situation. Yeah. Let's get somebody else in the in the mix. Who else has a question? Yeah, you in the Yankee hat. Thank you. Thank you. Mike's future plans, his business interests, his boxing interests. No interest in, in having anything to do with boxing. Which is tragic because he could be a legendary commentator. Absolutely. Doesn't want to do it. Absolutely. Does not want to do it. What he, what he does want to do is get back on his feet financially and uh, establish some kind of financial base that he doesn't now have. And what, he's making some appearances, but because they pay him a lot of money to appear anywhere around the world. But the thing that he's doing that I think is going to be the most lucrative for him is he is, uh, he's got a game, and I'm a, a retard at this shit, but it's a kind of virtual reality boxing Wii type it's game. It's an EA Sports game yeah. where, he, where you can have him fight Ali and other champs from the past. So it's Primarily Tyson and Ali together are going to have it own it jointly. And then in addition, he's got a, uh, he's got a, a thing where uh, he is, uh, he's, they're writing a book about him. He's got a lot of money for Jamie Foxx is desperate to play him in a fictional version of his life. And I can't think of anybody better. We were arguing about this on Twitter. Who could be better than Foxx? to play Mike. Nobody, and he will, because that's, you know, they, they, they're friends and, and he really wants to. Maybe if Don Cheadle bulked up, yeah, it'd be, he could do it, but they, it's gotta, yeah, I think it's yeah. got to be Jamie Foxx. Yeah, it will be, will be. It will be. In fact, Jamie Foxx, I think, is coming to the red carpet in our, uh, in our L.A. premiere next week. Who else wants to get involved in the conversation? Yes. Fascinating question. When did you become aware of your fear of death? In retrospect. In other words, it took me about a year after uh, my, my uh, waking up from the injection, and I was trying to figure out why did I react that way. And my first answer, obviously, was I took too big a dose. But then I started realizing it was not just that. It had something to do with where I was coming from when I took it. 
And I, I, it took me quite a while before I understood that the real difference between me before and me after was that I now was completely open to death as a fine, okay reality at any given moment. Because most people, if you ask yourself, are you afraid to die, you'd say, no, not really. you say, do you accept that you're going to die? Sure, when? Oh, well, not now. Not, not, I mean, you know, maybe, I don't know, way down the road. Well, that means you don't accept it. Because if you accept it, you accept the fact that it could be in two seconds or in five minutes, or tonight, or tomorrow, because that is the reality. Everybody's vulnerable to it at every given moment. And it finally it dawned on me that I was not only okay with it at any given moment, that I was actually almost looking forward to it in some odd way. And then I thought, before my acid thing, I was completely freaked out at the thought of it. I didn't think about it all the time, but anytime anything came close to provoking my death, and I was leading a very wild life, so I know I'd been shot at, I'd had all kinds of stuff in my life, and I thought, I thought whenever I've come close to death, I've fucking panicked. So th that was a totally different reality that had taken place. Um. That was a fantastic question. I'm, I'm going to get to you next, sir, because you haven't asked a question yet. But let me, you made me think of something else. I heard a story because you were the screenwriter of Bugsy. Right. Great, great film, and which was nominated for an Oscar in your category. Should have won. Well, 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 that's what we're getting at, that I heard a story that, because, you know, they show everybody, right? And they always want you to see the loser's instant reaction. And everybody does that polite thing of like, yeah. So happy that she won it, but but I hear that when you didn't win, you're like fucking bullshit. I, I, yeah, no, I, I, it's always I've always thought it was hysterical. Everybody comes to lose. They get like they announce someone else won, and you jump up and they're cheering. It's like, what would you do if you won? Be depressed, you know? So so I just thought I would, first of all I was assuming I was going to win, but secondly I, I thought if I don't win, I'm sure as hell just going to react at the moment, not pretend. So Bobby Duval is a friend of mine is opening the envelope and from the time he opens the envelope I can see from his face that I didn't win and as he's reading the name of the winner Callie Curie for Thelma and Louise I say spontaneously get the fuck out of here and and everybody's looking over at me in absolute horror and I went into the men's room afterward and somebody said uh, you know you really should learn how to take defeat and <laughs> I don't want to be a good loser <laughs> you sir I would never, you, never. Would you do acid again? Would you do it with Mike Tyson? I never did another drug after that in my life, and you I never would drink, do one. You don't even drink wine? No, nothing. I don't do anything. That was it. I went over to the other side. I saw what it was like. I came back and said, thanks. You know, <laughs> that's it. I'd been getting high every day for several years, and I thought, that chapter of my life is history. Who? I, I would not advocate it to anybody who is even mildly off-center behaviorally. Because I think you got a very good chance. Uh, well, I, I, I know of very few people who could safely take LSD. But I think that the, the, the ones who can are people. First of all, i got to tell you, right now, what passes for LSD, is the, which is called acid, is nothing like what it was then. Sanders Laboratories, which made LSD 25, it's not made anymore. And the conceit in Harvard Man is, because it takes place today, that this woman student in the movie 
ma manufactures chemically the pure LSD-25. But the acid today is much less dangerous. I'm not advocating it. But the, the LSD-25 that would cause so many suicides in my era, you don't have students jumping out of windows regularly the way they were doing in the 60s. But I still would be careful with it because anyone who's a bit off-center, it takes you much further off. And, and as I was telling you, one sentence can, you know, sort of like the Manchurian candidate. You can fucking flip all places from just the word here or there. Who else has a, a question? Yes. How did you get Mike to talk in, in such a vulnerable state? In such a vulnerable state, yes, that's true. That, uh, you know, it wasn't that I had to get him to do it. Once we had talked about doing it, there was only one way to do it, which was totally uh, open, revelatory, and uninhibited. And uh, I think that there's a confessional streak in Mike, just as there is in certain very observant Catholics who look forward to their confession, <laughs> who actually can't do without it and who maintain their sanity by going to confession, not just every Sunday, but constantly during the week whenever they feel a need for confession. And Mike is a confessional character. He has a, not to just anybody, but when he feels someone understands him, which is rare, uh, he needs to, and in fact, over the years, I've had many late-night, middle-of-the-night calls from him, always the same, pick up the phone, James Toback, Mike Tyson, as if I needed his identi identification, <laughs> I say, and, and right away, we're into it, just as the movie is. I mean, it takes 10 seconds, and we're on the same level the movie is. Well, let, let, let's show him a clip, and this will be like one of those, uh, you know, one of those late-night talk show moments where I would say, Let's set up the clip, and you would say, I don't know what clip it's going to be, Dave. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so let's, let's show the clip, and we can break it down afterward. I can remember boxing for the heavyweight championship of the world. It was November 22nd, 1986. I was fighting against Trevor Burbick. Greatest fighter to ever lived was Muhammad Ali. And he had just took a humiliating beating by Trevor Burbick. And I was angry and I was looking for revenge. And I can remember Ali coming to me in the ring because he was introduced to the ring. And Ali coming to me and said, get him for me. Bangs the body. Wow, that up and Tyson. him with a left hook. He represented my future, my life. He represented everything that I wanted in life. After the fight, I was just so, um, man, I was just so delated. I just, I didn't know what to do. I knew Cuss would have been proud if he was there to watch me win the championship. It was something that we always talked about. I'd like to dedicate my fight to my great guardian, Custom Auto. And I'm, I'm sure he's up there and he's looking and he's talking to all the great fighters and saying his boy did it. He's smiling, that's right. <laughs> what are your ambitions from here on out? To unify the title. I wore the championship belt for probably at least three weeks. Uh -huh. Even when I went to the store, right, it's water around my waist. I was just very proud. There's, there's, there's such an interesting split there between the thing that he's saying and the way that he's... I was very proud, and this is one of the happiest moments of his life, elated, talking about his father, but the tone and the body language and the affect is very flat and... Like you'd be talking about anything. Well, he starts to, if you actually 
listen to that a couple of times, he actually starts to choke up a little bit at the end there. And, you know, he has, uh, the, what it actually is, is, and he talks about it early in the movie, he always had breathing problems when he was a kid. And his breathing is very irregular and very labored. And what happens is when he's talking, he's actually having trouble breathing. Because you talk about that he had lung problems yeah. that put him in the hospital as a small child. Right, and he and he uh, and he always said he said he always needed his fights to end early by knockout because he knew he couldn't continue to breathe well later in the fight. And he has actually, when you listen to him, and I didn't notice this all the years I knew him, but until I had my earphones on, I was listening to him when we were shooting. It was the first thing I noticed the first day when I put my earphones on. He's just sitting there on the couch, and I'm listening to this. And I thought, is this just Mike, or is this the way these earphones are affecting? So just out of curiosity, I asked the uh, sound guy to Mike. I just went over, and I said, just let me hear you, you know. And it wasn't the same thing at all. You could barely hear him. First of all, I knew that's how the movie would end right then. I said, I'm going to end it on that breathing. But I think that when you actually listen to many of the times, you're, what you're listening to is a delivery that he's trying to keep controlled because actually it's a struggle to keep his breathing sufficiently going to keep the language flowing. You know, that's one of the things, I mean, there's a lot of things in this movie that really put into context who Mike was if you watch the whole career. Because um, I always thought, like, you know, if you get him into later rounds, you have a shot to beat him because there's a character issue. He wants to bully you, and if he can't bully you, then he's going to lay down, right? But that's not really the case. There's a physical problem going Absolutely. on. And like you break down what really happened in the ear biting fight, which Tyson fans always thought he saw that he couldn't beat Evander, so he sabotaged the fight by biting. No, he saw Evander headbutting him repeatedly, cheating. So he said, Screw the rules. I'm going to destroy you. Right, exactly. He said, I hated him. I wanted to kill him. I wanted to kill anyone, everyone in his corner because he'd butted him in the eye in the first fight. Now he's butting him again in the second fight. And he opened the cut again in the second fight. And he looks at Mills Lane, who basically said, shut up and fight. And then he said, I just didn't care. I didn't care about the rules. I didn't care about discipline. I just wanted to hurt him. I wanted to hurt everyone in his corner. I wanted to kill everyone in his corner. I wanted to kill everyone who was cheering. And he just bit him. And he said, then I wanted to push him and kick him in the groin. As it's pronounced as groin. And he says, and then I wanted to bite him in the other ear. So he bites him in the other ear. And he said, and in effect, what he says is, I didn't regret it because I hated him so much. I was so angry at why he was trying to hurt me. What I regretted and felt bad about was that I lost my discipline. And he said, the one thing Cus always taught me was the warrior needs to maintain his discipline. And he says, and I lost my discipline. And from that moment on, he never really cared about boxing. He says, from that moment on, I just was fighting for a payday. I didn't care about the title. I didn't care about anything. I just cared about making some money because boxing didn't mean anything to me anymore. That fight ended it for him. And it was not just the external that ended it for him. It was the knowledge that he himself was not the same person anymore that he cracked under his rage and that even though he had felt that rage he's supposed to maintain his discipline and he didn't who else yeah you with the tie his most influential moment in your life as a filmmaker so as a filmmaker that would preclude the LSD episode, yeah. which seems to be the moment in your life. Yeah. 
The most influential moment is as I didn't go to film school, I never took a film course. I um, I uh, loved the movies, but I never thought I was going to make movies and didn't know anything about it. And I had gotten out of Harvard, and I married the granddaughter of the Duke of Marlborough and lived in Blenheim Palace and had a ball for a while. And then I moved into the Hollywood Hills with Jim Brown and had another kind of ball and wrote some journalism and wrote that book. Basically, I still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, and I wasn't particularly worried about it. I just thought, when I figure it out, I'll figure it out. I'm not going to pressure myself. Everybody else is saying, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I said, I don't know. When, when I'm ready to know, I'll know. And uh, what happened was I was actually writing a novel because I still harbored some instinct about being a novelist. And I was writing a novel called The Gambler. And all of a sudden, halfway through the novel, I realized I was thinking of it as a movie. It was actually in my mind a movie. And I thought, well, if it's in my mind as a movie, why am I writing it as a novel? I'd never even read a script. So I thought, well, I'll just continue writing it, but I'm going to write it as though I'm seeing and hearing what's on the screen. When is this? 1972. So I, I, I actually just described everything that was in my head and what I'm hearing and seeing. Then I went out and bought James Agee's screenplays just to see what the format was like, and I reconstructed it as a script. And then Carol Rice, a great British director, was given the script by my agent, and Carol called me up and said, I do not know this world. I'm a Czech refugee who lives in England. I've made films only in England. But I'm fascinated by the character. And if you want to come to London and spend a year here with me, maybe I'll be able to do it as a director. And I went and I spent basically 11 months seeing him six hours, seven hours a day, six days a week, talking it out, changing, writing things, learning. Finally, he came to America with me. We went to New York. I introduced him to City College to the gangster that the characters were based on to, to uh, the world of Vegas and gambling. And about a month or two later, he said he's ready to do the movie. And then we, we set it up at Paramount. And I, Carol Rice was my film school. I was literally pre-production, shooting, post-production, practically living physically with him. And at the end of that movie, I knew I was going to make them myself from that point on. Then I did Fingers after that. But that was the turning point, the, the moment when I was literally writing a novel and said, this is not a novel, it's a movie. Who else has a question? Nobody? None of you? Sir? If Customato had lived longer, would it have changed Mike's life? Uh, I don't believe so, because I think he still would have had to deal with the fact that all of a sudden he was on his own. Because Cus's environment was so protective that if he'd lived, say, five more years, then instead of being a 19-year-old out on his own all of a sudden, he would have been a 24-year-old out on his own all of a sudden. But Cus was a basically cocoon creating protector and he really unless it, Mike had br broken away from him but as long as Mike was still in which case he might as well have died in terms of that aspect of it as long as he was living up there he was still going to have to deal with the world without cuss and that was the big shock not so much that he was 19 as opposed to 22 23 whatever it might have I mean, been I'm surprised you say that because I would think the answer would be of course I mean sure he had Jim Jacobs and Bill Caton who were really fatherly, 
but custom model was somebody who could say anything and Mike would follow that, but and that, he would have made but, him be more disciplined. But the cru- well, it just would have lasted longer. He would have had a longer period of time. Yeah, the difference and is he would have been he champion would have for longer. A better person have that character last longer in his life. You know, like these guys who like come out of basketball, high school, right. go to the pros. They're not as disciplined as the guys who do some time in college. Maybe that's possible. You know, it's possible. But on the other hand, there were all a lot of guys who came out of college and they made it. Like look. You know, you look at um, uh, LeBron James, you look at a lot of these guys, and they're mature and handle everything. It's, a lot of it's personality. I mean, Mike was a formed guy before he went to Cuss, too. He just got reformed. And that formation of emptiness and, and pain and neglect and un- insecurity, that was not going to go away. That was festering there and waiting to break out no matter what happened with Cuss or without him. Uh, let's show one more piece from the movie. So I was staying at Cuss House, you know, I come from a really poverty-strucking area, and then when I came to live with Cuss, they live in a 14-room Victorian mansion. And I first come here, I said, wow, I could rob these white guys. But they ain't hip, not thinking, I'm not, I'm not knowing this guy been around the world a bunch of times. I never knew he was like me. He was from a bad neighborhood. He was a street kid like me. And then one day he used to just say, listen, you have the chance to change your life, your family's life. You could be something very special. Don't you want to be champion? You could be champion of the world. And I, I didn't pay no attention to it. He said, really? You could be champion of the world. You could devastate the world. No man could take what you do. You just got to believe it. I looked at this guy, and then I started thinking. I said, you really? And I said, this guy's really crazy. That's what I said. This guy's crazy. He said, you do what I tell you to do, and if it doesn't work, then, then you could leave. So I said, OK, bet. So I did um, everything he told me to do, and um, I won. I won. Um, I won every um, championship from the um, from the amateur championship. I won all the championships. I got. I'm, I'm gonna cry. So um, I won every championship that he, um, that he told me because he told me what to do. I mean, you see there the emotionality that exists in the piece, the relationship with Cuss. And also I think that you shouldn't look at this as like, I like Mike Tyson, thus I'm going to go see this, or I don't like him, I'm not gonna see this. This is an extraordinary portrait of an extraordinary individual who lived in the same moment as us. And if you're interested in seeing a very deep character talk about himself and a deep individual put the lens on him, you should check this out. Well, that's the way I feel. There's always been something weird to me about the way we look at movies, where we say, like, who is there to root for? You know, like, whom were you rooting for in Macbeth, you know? Uh, I mean, I mean, who, were you rooting for Richard III? You know, it's like the idea that you need to have, it's like a baseball game, and you're rooting for the home team, as opposed to saying, I'm interested in seeing something complex and new, and learning something and feeling something I wouldn't have felt otherwise. And uh, this idea of turning films into a kind of simple-minded uh, battle between good and evil in which good wins so you can go home and feel better about yourself 
I used to get depressed by that. I have to say, movies that were considered depressing when I was a kid, I found exhilarating. And movies that had happy endings, I always felt were inherently phony. I was never fooled by them. I used to go feeling, get the fuck out of it, the way I did when I lost the Academy Award. It was like, it was like, what is this shit? You know, telling me everything's fine. I knew everything wasn't fine. When I was six, I knew everything wasn't fine. Well, I mean, you know, it's been... Uh Quite amazing to listen to you talk, and so appropriate to be right next to the Genius Bar with Jim Toback. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for coming, guys. Uh, always check out our website, apple.com slash Soho, for more information on the special events and workshops that we have going on here on a regular basis. Also, don't forget... The Tribeca Film Festival coming on April 22nd. Check our website out for the details of that. We have some postcards for you up here at the podium and on either side of the stands over here on the last row of our theater. Thanks, everybody, for coming, and have the best night ever.